You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Coming to you from Podcast Detroit, it's Heard, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Heard is a collaboration between the Hungry Dudes, Nick Drinks, and the Detroit Optimist Society. Each week, we interview industry professionals about issues related to food, beverage, and hospitality. Please take a moment to subscribe to Herd through the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, SoundCloud, or however you subscribe to your podcasts. Write a review and let us know what you think. For additional content, including awesome videos and photos, visit HerdPodcast.com, like Herd Podcast on Facebook, and follow at Herd Podcast on Instagram. We appreciate your support and hope you enjoy this week's episode of Herd. Happy 2019, friends. Ooh, Welcome to Herd. I really thought that Vato would have like the sound <laughs> clicker with like the, you know. <laughs> Start how we ended last year, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I brought something special to share with everybody, and we're going to do a shot of Nick. You're a jerk. We're going to do a shot of Nick. Baiju. The world's most popular spirit, like by decent amount, too. What? Like, yeah. I mean, this is a population issue. This is yeah, it's chi- because China, 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 like just just churns through this stuff. Yeah, and this is so you have Mao Mao Mutai, Mutai, which is one of the few we can get in Michigan. Um, it's not cheap though. I want to say that bottle's over a hundred bucks. It's a five hundred milliliter bottle. Yeah, Th- this is this. You're welcome, guys. This is from 2005. This is an age vintage, bu- <laughs> vintage, yeah, vintage. Uh, Baiju. So there's four varieties of Baiju. So I I took one of the classes at Tales of the Cocktail. And it's like light, dark, soy, soy, and something else. And I might be totally butchering that. Um, but I have Ming River, which is a new one that just launched. And um, that one's at my house. And I think that one's a little more palatable compared to this one. <laughs> yeah, what it's is the use case flavor. for this? Straight. Wow. It's, it's kind of like, you know, can you make a cocktail with, um, oh, what's the Chinese or what's the Chicago spirit? Crazy Malort. one. Malort. Malort. It's like, can you make a cocktail with Malort? You can. It's not easy. <laughs> I like Malort. I, I don't mind it at all. I, I think it's quite good. I like Basque better. I like Basque as well. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And that's the Leatherby uh, version, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So cheers, guys. Let's. You're supposed to shoot this, right? Goodbye. Yeah. Goodbye. I hope so because that's what's about to happen. Ah, oh, you're a jerk. Yeah. Oh. 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 <laughs> so many no, layers. No, no, no one likes it. I, I think um, – it's it's it's, it's, oh, it's it's such a strong flavor. Yeah. Woo. I apologize for that. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> That's that the soy. It's soy. I definitely <laughs> taste soy flavors in there. Soy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Woo. <laughs> <laughs> so, as as that is like the kind of opening to the new year, like how was how was the holidays? Good for everybody. Like, you guys have. <laughs> No, don't, don't. Jason's giving me like a look that like, <laughs> Jason ran like fourteen different bars. No, that's and like not true. Twenty-two different parties. No, that's not true. I was really just looking at the whiskey to oh. wash the <laughs> yeah. to wash the yeah. That's a, that's a taste good point. out of my mouth. And, and um, um, so Jason brought a, bo- a bottle of single barrel seventeen ninety two from our friends at Keg and Wine uh, over in Redford. Um, we've had bottles of theirs on the show before, and they usually do a good job of picking. 
There you go. Yeah, Chris is great. Um, yeah, just to be clear, I did not run any parties. Um, <laughs> we the amazing uh, staff at all the properties that had a great evening, um, but it was a good night. Yeah, and everybody's she, really happy to get uh, you know the year over and start right. fresh with the new year. New Year's Eve, uh, solid video mm-hmm. you guys came out with at Sugar House. The um, what's the cocktail? Oh, the Black Fog. Yeah, is that the one that I had when I was there for Yelp? Mm, or is that a different? Might it was a different variety, be, maybe. I'd have to go back and take a look. Very well fun. done video. Yeah. Um, we were just kind of having some fun with it. The seasonal menu is Great Lakes Maritime history. And, um, you know, we've talked about farm to table and grain to glass and all these weird different things. But we wanted to take it even a little bit further and go idea to glass, I guess. And um, just take some inspiration from uh, as Michiganders. We're obviously growing up with uh, late culture. And uh, I don't know. It. I only became really aware of it recently taking my nephew to the Dawson Museum on Belle Isle, where they actually have that Gothic room that's partially like right when you reconstructed. Walk in. Yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful stained glass, and so yeah, it was really cool. It was a really um, great opportunity to, um, you know, I said I didn't make the drink. That was uh, Reggie Jake at uh, Sugar House, but uh, partnering with Castalia, which we've done a couple times. Uh, Kevin's Shout out to done Kevin, some yeah. some amount of fragrances um, at a couple bars. Mm-hmm. Bad Luck first and the right, and Sugar House has now used one. So. Um. Yeah, that was a fun project. Go check it out. Was it M One that did that? Um. What was it the video? No, okay. just a kid that uh, Evan Evan Zott. Okay, was a kid in the, uh, locally does some uh, work. He hit me up and we worked together on a bad luck video. Just wanted to shoot some nice. real stuff. He does some stuff for the DIA and local studios and stuff. So just kind of messing around, having some fun with it. That's cool. Nick, how did the Golden knows? Jigger Awards go? Well, have we not talked since then? Nope. Wow. Yeah, no, it was super fun. We had a uh, we sold out the space. We had 85 seats. Everyone sat down. We gave out 14 different awards. Um I'm slowly starting to pass them all out. Jason actually just got the the nameplate for his. So uh so uh, Sugar House won uh best whiskey program. So I just uh, delivered that to him. Delivered Keiko's today. I delivered Long Road when I was on the West Side the other day. Um so that means I have 11 more that I have to deliver. <laughs> I've already found one spelling error, so I have to make one again. <laughs> <laughs> what did you respond? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Whiskey? Uh, Did you spell it? I spelled yeah, E-Y I, I put what? two E's in it, actually. Two yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm sick of cooking. I Apparently, I was in a bad mood New Year's Eve because we were cooking for a million people, and I just like had it with cooking. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So like New Year's Day, I did nothing. I don't think we changed clothes. I don't think we brushed our teeth. Did you build Legos? Just, <laughs> yes. Ah, so you did something. <laughs> I got the, um, the, wind, uh, the wind farm thing. It's like four feet tall. It's huge. Wow. Yeah. Impressive. That's my that's my holiday. Holiday. Vato. Uh I uh went to the Peterborough for dinner on nice. New Year's Eve. All right. And following that, uh we went to the Fillmore. And we haven't gone out for anything any party like that and I, I can't remember when and uh went with the some friends of ours and uh, I felt old, but <laughs> I had a really good time. I mean they they categorize it as that like night a, or the next morning. <laughs> Uh, no, I felt old that night for sure. But they categorize it as like a 20s and 30s party. Um, but it was a lot of fun. For people in 20s and 30s or for the 1920s and the 1930s? No. Oh, which one? Folks that are in their 20s oh, and their 30s. I don't know. I don't know if it was a Gatsby party or some shit. I don't no. know. Someone did a Gatsby party, didn't they? I felt I, like I, I saw so. someone dressing up. That could be crazy. Oh. Uh, Might have been repealed, dude. <laughs> so, so you were like the... Yeah, there was oh, a lot of repeal yeah. day stuff, yeah. You are like the old... 
old dude. I am. Yeah. Okay. The, yeah. I wasn't the oldest person there, which was good. <laughs> Did you take a survey or something? No, you could tell. <laughs> like, I mean, I could, you know, look around. It's like that, that couple over there is, you know, in their 60s. <laughs> I didn't feel so bad. But it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Everyone was like nice and the staff was nice and the service was nice. and So they definitely didn't get the memo about the 20s and 30s party. <laughs> they didn't, yeah. But uh, and the Peter, Peterborough was nice. Oh, Born was in nice. the twenty or thirties, that's what they. And thought. They, <laughs> the the decorations there were awesome. I loved the the balloons in the in the ceiling. They had the red and uh, uh, white balloons there, and uh, the place was done up really well. And I had a good time. Great, Joe. What did you do? Do you cook or do you like just steal stuff from the for bakery? New Year's Eve? I I did cook. You yes. Did? Um. I, I we. Oh yeah, you did a big spread if I remember correctly. Um. Yeah, I did. Uh, grilled some steaks. Nice. Uh, some king crab. Um. Just bought a bunch of dips from uh, Westbourne over on Woodward there. Um, it was pretty – it was it looked excessive, but it was very simple to prepare. Did you get the crab from Westbourne, the sale? Yeah, we sure did. They were all sold out. All the Westbourne – I called around. All really? the Westbournes were sold out. They were sold out before Christmas for the sale because oh. it was a December sale. So anyone doesn't know, it's like what, all the Westbournes compete with each other for shrimp – Lobster tail mm. and crab, who can sell the most? And they put them all in special for the month of December. Huh. They sold out a crab really early. So one year they did crab at nine ninety nine a pound, king crab. Wow. This year it was like thirteen ninety nine a pound, which is ridiculously low. And they sold out really quick, and they said they were going to have more on New Year's Eve. And New Year's Eve morning they sold out again. Wow. At that, at that price. I, I had no idea that it was that big of a deal. Yeah. I was, They've been um, doing it for years. Oftentimes during the holidays, they'll pick up um, stuff from grocery stores for folks at the bakery because they're working so hard. We'll do like instead of doing pizza every day, we'll do like a veggies and dip, veggies and dip, something like that. And I was there and I just saw it. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm gonna buy a couple bags and uh, some shrimp, and I bought all you know all yeah. of it. And- I bought a case one year, just on that sale. Oh, nine ninety nine. Case was like two thirty or something like wow. that. I do have to say, I sous vide for the first time. For Christmas Day, yeah, I sous vide. Um, there were wagyu steaks that um, Farmfield Table had. Yeah, that they weren't like a, a a great great cut, but they were a decent cut. I sous vide them for an hour and then seared them, and they weren't they weren't finished. They needed more sous vide. Oh, really? So that was based on a little chart that I found. So like, so that's my thing with sous vide. Like, do you like open the bag and check the temp, and then if they're not ready, seal them up and do them again? That seems like a. I mean, it's a science, food, though. Well, I mean, I mean some food. Because uh, I, I did, I measured each of them. They were each two yeah. inches, and I did it for an hour, and I did the right temp. Where did you get the temp? Uh, like some big, like Epicurious or Food and Wine, like someone with some, you know. Thomas Keller's got a good book out. Yeah. This is the first time I've ever done it. I only just heat cocktails with my sous vide. It's a very overpriced <laughs> tool. <laughs> heat cocktails? Yeah, hey, you make a water bath, and you put like the glass um, vessels in there, and it keeps the cocktails warm. Oh. It's great. Interesting. Yeah. That's fascinating. I would never think to use a sous vide for that. It's the only thing I've used a bar. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we talked about 2018 ending, 2019 beginning, and we're going to start 2019 with the guest that started 2018. Mallory Brown runs innovative philanthropic campaigns around the world that make charity, make charity personal. Her goal is to connect audiences to incredible causes and provide a direct means to help. At the age of 32, she has explored 45 countries and expresses her love of culture and humanity through her work. She hopes her story inspires others to live a passionate, generous, and global life. In eight years of storytelling, she has represented dozens of companies and hundreds of generous donors to help to help thousands in need. 
Her efforts have been featured in the Today Show, New York Times, Crane's Detroit Business, The Huffington Post, and Cosmopolitan Magazine for pioneering new and engaging approach to philanthropy. That word messed me up. Sorry. Mallory, thank you once again for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you were busy last year. <laughs> yeah, I had a very busy 2018. Um, so th- the when we talked last, uh, you were talking about um, your new um, initiative, which is called Walk a Mile, correct? Mm-hmm, okay. Exactly. So Walk a Mile is um, you're going to talk to 26 different women and walk a mile with each of them. So it's essentially a marathon, right? Yep. Yes. I'm walking a mile in the shoes of impoverished women around the world. And I'm doing that 26 times. Uh, So it's 26 different women. Each one's in a different country. Each one has a different job. Um, They're all trying to pull their families out of poverty. So it adds up that I walk a marathon around the world in the shoes of women. And um, I tell their stories to try to evoke empathy for what women are going through around the world. And then each of the women featured, um, she's been helped by a local charity. So viewers that watch her story, if they're moved to help, they can donate and they can help women on the ground like her. And so my goal with Walk a Mile is that through 26 episodes, I'll raise $1 million for working women. Wow. That's awesome. So the first episode, um, which has been released, is puts you in Tanzania, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Did we get a sneak peek of that? No, I think it's it's on YouTube, right? It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay, live. it's yep. out there. Because yeah. I feel like I got an alert. I watched it, and then I got an alert like later, like, "Hey, stay for stay tuned for the premiere." So I was all excited, like, "Do we get a sneak peek?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can have a sneak peek. If you like. <laughs> um, so t- talk about this this episode that uh, that you uh, recorded in Tanzania. Yeah, so mile one was in Tanzania. Um, fascinating story. I walked with a woman named Elizabeth. So she is a local Tanzanian woman. Um, don't be confused that her name's Elizabeth because many African people have taken on Western names because of the colonization there and missionaries. Um, but Elizabeth didn't speak any English. She knew zero English um, from Mwanza, Tanzania. But she has a fascinating job. Um, so she's a stove mason, which means that she handcrafts stoves, cook stoves. Uh, she makes them out of pottery. So she, um, you know, starts from scratch making the clay and then molds the stove and, uh, you know, does the, her whole artwork of it. And then uh, turns out to be a little camp stove and she sells them at the local market. So it sounds like a totally normal entrepreneurship business, but the fascinating part uh, two fascinating parts. So first is to keep in mind that Elizabeth herself is a totally impoverished woman. So she lives below the poverty line, uh, less than $2 a day. She makes the stoves from mud that she finds. She uses local materials. She uses leaves. She uses like a corn on the cob, the center of the of the cob to punch holes into the stove. So this is a total grassroots operation here. But the stoves look good. Yeah, they're really well made. Mm -hmm. And when you see what she's working with to make this, I mean, she's doing that on a dirt floor in her home. Um, It's really an artwork that she comes, you know, comes out with this beautiful stove. Um, But the stoves, actually, the purpose of them is what's really fascinating. So, uh, in general, people in poverty, they cook 
over an open flame. So they would have an open flame in a building kitchen in inside, yeah, yeah inside a building. So um, they just kind of make a campfire, put a pot mm-hmm. on there, and cook their rice and beans. Cooking that way is horrible for your health. It's the equivalent of smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. So everyone in the house that's, you know, the three-year-old son and the six-year-old daughter, they're all inhaling two packs of cigarettes a day. And so respiratory issues are the number one leading cause of death in developing countries. So the stoves are actually, because they're like a cook stove and a camp stove, kind of how we would have, they allow you to contain the smoke and you can move it outside so you can cook in a safe environment um, that's, you know, won't kill you in the end. So it's really a life-saving tool for these families. Um, And so Elizabeth makes the stoves because she understands this need and she understands that the women around her are all suffering. And so she wants to make something that can help. So from the point of her making these stoves, how long does it take to produce one? And then what is she, how much is she selling them for? So, uh, she makes the clay and it's, you know, it's like the whole process of, I just took a pottery class in Royal Oak and it's similar. It's a similar process where you have to make the clay and then you have to let it sit for two weeks, you know, and then the actual making the stove, like molding it into its form only takes her, I mean, she can do five of them in a day, but then she has to um, let them sit and she has her own type of like kiln that she has and she puts them all in a fire and she burns them and then she's got to paint them. And then, you know, so the whole process probably takes a month from, from start to finish um, to make the stoves. And she tries to make a hundred a month and then she takes them to the local market and sells them three different sizes. So they range between $6 is the cheapest and $30 is the most expensive stove. So she's still selling those to local, local women. Now, g- given what you said about the, the the poverty line and being impoverished and living off two dollars a day, who who can afford these stoves once she gets to the market? Yeah, so it's um, you know doing doing this type of work and traveling to see people, and you're really starting to learn the details about living in poverty. It blows your mind that a six dollar stove that could be the difference between you dying of lung cancer and not, is out of reach for some people. And, like, they can't afford that $6 stove. It's um, really puts things in perspective. But a lot of the way that people in developing countries work is they they have a very community mindset. So um, neighbors will pool together. So everyone chips in a dollar, and then it'll add up to be $6. One of them will go buy a stove. And then the next month... They'll all chip in a dollar again, and then, you know, a person number two can go buy a stove. And so over the course of however many months, everyone in the little village can have a stove. Um, or oftentimes, one person will have a stove, and all the neighbors will come around and use it and cook with it. So, you know, you're making a giant pot of rice and giant pot of beans that, that's going to feed you and all the neighbors, too. So where did she come up with the idea to do this? Um, to do Walk a Mile. Wow. Well, it's, oh, oh, no. I'm sorry. Where did she come up with the idea oh, to do this stove? Up, sorry. <laughs> um, Elizabeth. So she had learned um, 
how to make stoves from just working with clay. I think it's something that her family had done. And then uh, the nonprofit, which I focused on, which is the beneficiary of this mile. So that nonprofit's called The Adventure Project. And they invest in entrepreneurial solutions that help eliminate poverty. So The Adventure Project went in to Tanzania and found these groups of women that were trying to make stuff out of clay and trained them as to this is how to make a stove. And they gave them uh, materials training and marketing training and business training, and they helped Elizabeth open her first bank account. So she has an actual working business here. She has people that she hires underneath her to make stoves. And so, um, so the nonprofit gives them all of that sort of business training so she can take this pottery you know, skill she has and do something long-term with it. Do, do they also, also teach her how to run a business and, and like all the kind of um, difficulties that go with, say, uh, hiring people and, and those types of techniques yeah, as well? Yeah, absolutely. And so I was asking Elizabeth, you know, what's one of the the greatest things she learned? And she's talking about business lessons that even, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and I need to learn this lesson still. But um you know, she said to me that not everybody's going to need a stove or be able to afford a stove when they pass you in the market. So I need to start marketing myself, start getting – she passes out these little flyers that she made. She gives out her phone number. And she's like, I want to be the person that they think of mm. when they decide five months from now I want a stove or I could afford a stove. And so she's really starting to – own that like branding of herself is like I'm the stove lady of Mwanza and like whenever you need a stove you come to me and uh, that's a really evolved I mean that's a that's a really like good entrepreneur's mindset to to think that way um, especially in poverty you know one of the one of the hardest issues in poverty is that you're just you're trying to get through the day and you don't have enough money to plan or to move forward because every day's survival day. And so to be able to have that sort of foresight to be trying to get customers for months in the future, that's that's a really advanced mindset for for her level of of income. Is, is she diversified at all or is it just stoves? Because it seems like if she's making 100 stoves a month and they're only selling like one stove for per village at a time per month, she's going to have a lot of, you know, stock, right? So she making something else that she can peddle at the market? Uh, no, she's only doing stoves, but you'd be surprised at how um, needed they are because something that pretty much every single family needs. And when people are well off, they could afford more than one stove. You know, oh, it's kind see. of like a burner. So she had three stoves that she would use to cook. So she'd use one to make the rice and one to make the beans and one to make the fish. And so um, so you can keep selling them. And yeah. So if you haven't seen the video, I mean, I don't know if we can, we're not good at sharing links, but uh, the, we can share the link. We can share the link. Yeah, yeah. We will we'll attempt to. It is probably the size of a wok. If you'd say, mm -hmm. and then there's almost like a big coffee can below it. Mm -hmm. So you're putting the fuel kind of in the bottom and mm -hmm. then that you're being able to put your pot then on top. And yep. that is kind of the, the cooking surface, if you will. Yeah. And so, and the stoves work off of charcoal yep. and they also work off of firewood. Um, 
and they are energy efficient. So it's much more efficient to cook on that thing than to to make a bonfire every day. You're blowing mm-hmm. through firewood and deforestation is a really huge issue in developing countries. So um so yeah, they they say that for every cook stove sold they're saving six trees that won't be used in wow. um you know, making hmm. the the campfires. And then that's saving time because you're not gathering wood or buying wood or anything. So yeah, it's really it's a very efficient way to to cook. And this fact will blow your mind. I d- truly didn't believe it when I heard it, but then the more I thought about it, kind of made sense. Um, so from an environmental perspective, the black carbon emissions from cooking over open flame. So just all the people in the developing world that are cooking. Mm. And a flame fire, that's 3 billion people cook that way. That black carbon emission adds up to more emissions from all of the cars and trucks in the world combined. Yeah, that was kind of mind-blowing to me. It made me want to be like, you know, not that I don't believe you, but it's so mind-blowing that you're like, I've got to really follow up on that because, um, right, when you think about obviously climate change and all the, you know, the – politics of that and Leonardo DiCaprio just, you know, committing a bunch of money to climate change. It's like, but what if that is the issue, something of that, uh, which could be addressed with easy solution, you know, easy solutions for that amount of revenue or, you know, um, money to throw at the problem, right? Yeah. Like you're talking about these people are, uh, damn it, I hit a faulty chord today. Um, that must be a sign. Um, they're tackling this challenge at the ground level with ingenuity and their own, you know, hands and tools and and being able to make the six to thirty dollar stoves and like, yeah, how much impact would something uh, even an individual like that, much less like a serious policy response to something that seems like it could be really taken care of pretty quickly. Yeah, it's um, it's true. So many of, I mean. So many people in the developing world and then the um, all of the great charities that are trying to help them, you know, they're really – they work on multiple levels. You know, they're environmentally conscious. They're trying to uplift people out of poverty. They're trying to empower people at the same time. Um, and when you think about, you know, like kind of the old-fashioned way of living where people lived off the land, it was a much more environmentally friendly way to go about it. So when you look to those people, people like Elizabeth to – you know, what would your solution to this problem be? It's probably actually a really environmentally friendly solution because they don't think in terms of big industry. And um, so, yeah, it, it, it's a really, uh, it, it was fascinating to me. And when you see, when you drive by a village and you see all of these huts and people are burning, you know, their their flame is going almost all day long because they're going to cook three meals a day. Like these families probably don't have a car at all, but yet they have this fire that's emitting smoke that's going into the atmosphere 12 hours a day. So that's how that adds up and that's how it overpowers automobiles. So do you have, do you have outside research for like all the other countries? I know that's a huge problem in India as well. Like this, the same thing um, because they use the ovens and the ovens, you know, admit all the carcinogens and everything into the atmosphere. And um, at least, it, I mean, I'm sure they're still doing it, but it did like 10 years ago and I did some research on it. But have you seen anything else or any other solutions from other countries um, along these same kind of lines? Um, hmm. 
I mean, a lot of the same issues, they come up in multiple countries. So uh, I focused on this for Tanzania, but I had some people write in to me after they watched the video saying, oh, I grew up in Indonesia and my grandma cooked that way. And, you know, I, I came across a an NGO in India that was doing the same thing, trying to trying to teach people how to make cook stoves. So, you know, the same same problems all over the world and similar solutions in many different places. Uh, I find it fascinating that these kind of um, solutions to these problems, like, you know, we were, if we had an issue like that, we could just go to a store and, and buy a dispose, essentially a disposable stove, right? Um, th- these types of solutions aren't even possible there, right? Like, there's no store like that sell or if they do sell these stoves are they vastly ex- more expensive than what's being handmade by Elizabeth like are they, is it even an option in these country in these developing countries and is there even a like a governmental response to these people cooking over an open flame or is it something that people just shrug their shoulders at like on the you know on the government on the government side of it uh wow I mean, I can't speak for the governments, but, you know, this is people's way of of cooking. Of You know, you can't tell people they can't cook. Like, they have to provide food for oh, their families. I don't even so. mean that. I mean, like, if it's a problem, like, is it something that is seen by these governments as a, as a public health issue? Is that something that even is even thought about? Yeah, it is. And in the same way of, um, you know, washing hands. So in... Uh, in Elizabeth's house in the backyard, there was this like interesting contraption and I asked her what it was and it was basically like a little teepee made out of sticks and then there were two empty, emptied out water bottles in them and one was clear and one was cloudy. And I'm like, what is that? And apparently it's called a tippy tap and there's a string hanging and it's basically after you go to the bathroom, this is a, this is their sink and their hand soap. And so you can go and you push, like you step on the hanging string and it'll tilt the, um, the water bottle. And so you tilt the one that's cloudy because that one is soapy water and wash your hands. And then you tilt the one that's clear because that's clear water. And, you know, then you just washed your hands. And so that's heavily encouraged because people don't have running water and they don't have sinks. And that's a huge health issue all around. I mean, people are like a disease is a very common problem in developing countries. And if you can just provide these basic, you know, don't cook over open fire, eliminate lung disease, don't, you know, wash your hands after you go to the bathroom, you can eliminate tons of diseases. And so, uh, yeah, there's really simple solutions. Um, And it's, it's frustrating to see how such basic just a basic knowledge can really change someone's life. But people growing up in poverty, they're kind of cut off from the world. You know, they don't have means of learning, learning this stuff. And a lot of them don't have, they don't have internet. They don't have, they don't have the resources to do what, even if they know they need to do that. I mean, everybody knows like, yeah, it'd be great to have running water, but they can't afford it. So what am I supposed to do? You know? So, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's like a basic level of living that everyone should be at. And it's really, it's really very heartbreaking to know there's people that are just trying to make those basic, basic needs. And I, 
in the video, it says that she's making enough money to send her kids to school, right? Mm -hmm. And so is that something that the vast majority of people in her village can't do? Like are those kids – is that is – that, does that put her family like in a special place? I would say that – I don't know compared to the rest of her village, but in my work – in all of my work I've done around the world, and especially doing Walk a Mile, sending your kids to school is the number one motivation for women. So they work because they want their kids to have a better life than they have. And school is, oftentimes it's free to go to school. They're not paying an elementary school tuition, but they have to buy a uniform. They have to buy school books. Um, transportation to get to school is very challenging sometimes because they don't have school buses that run. And uh, these are really far apart villages, like farm villages, you know, so you might be like miles and miles and miles from school. So finding the transportation for your child. Um, so these are all issues that they cost money to solve. And and I would say that's that's the number one goal for working women. Um, they, this, the global statistic is that when a woman earns money for her family, 90% of it is reinvested into back into her family. And the first thing to come out would be school fees for her kids. Wow. So that's mile one. Mm -hmm. Have you started doing the other miles? I have. I filmed eight of them. Okay. Uh, so I, I filmed, I kind of film in chunks around the world. So Maya one was in Tanzania. I did two others in Africa, one in Kenya, one in Uganda. And then I did three in Central America, in Panama, Honduras, and Guatemala. And then I did one in Serbia and one in Israel. And do you have troubles with like like visas or transport or any stuff like that? Or are they pretty cool with like, yep, you're coming in for a good reason? So far, no problems. <laughs> yeah, knock on wood. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm starting to go to countries that are a little bit challenging in the visa situation. So uh, those you have to plan much more in advance. And, um, you know, there's little hiccups. When I was in Central America, I was flying from Panama to Honduras, which is kind of a quick little jumper flight. It's only a couple hours. But while I was in Panama, the international rules changed and you couldn't enter Honduras from Panama unless you had a yellow fever certificate to proof that you've had the vaccine. And my videographer did not have the vaccine. So we had our flight booked. We had we were going on to Guatemala after that. We had everything planned with the charities and we they're like, nope, you can't go to Honduras. So we had to detour, fly to El Salvador for a day, 24-hour quarantine, and then we could fly from El Salvador to Honduras. So, uh, yeah, you I mean, you kind of learn to laugh about that stuff and be flexible, and it, you know, adds to my country count, and now I've been to El Salvador <laughs> unexpectedly, but um, everything's workable. And do you, have you collected, like, a list of vaccines now now that you've traveled to these different places <laughs> uh yeah i pretty much have everything um it's it's funny when i go into the health clinic they're like so where are you you know where are you going because most people are going to brazil London. or yeah. yeah you know paris or yeah. something like one destination 
And I'm like, uh, you mean like this year? Because I have like 10 countries I'm going to this year. So, yeah, they think I'm a little crazy. Any any issues with like local um, corruption or anything like that with the with the governments or with gangs or crime or anything like that? Not in a long time. <laughs> I had a... I'd say my first big crazy trip I ever did was in 2012, and I drove across Africa. I drove across from the north corner to the south corner of Africa. Of Africa, so eleven That's a countries. Lot. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, and that was that was a bit of a like I'm young, crazy, and this is ridiculous. Um, we had a couple issues there, but uh, I, I think I've I've gotten wiser. And do you know the languages, or are you just kind of winging it? I'm just kind of winging it. Okay. So far, of the eight wa- miles I've done, none of the women have spoken English. Okay. Um, Any? N- yeah, none of them. So I always have a translator with me. And this is sort of a production joke, but if you're, if you're thinking this way, or if you've done any video work, you'll notice in the videos... Most of the time, it's really up close. And so it's me and a woman, and then like behind me is a translator who's telling me what's going mm-hmm. on. And they're not really in the video, mm-hmm. but they're close enough that I can hear. And then, um, but there are a couple moments when we're actually, I'm walking with her. It's like the actual walk a mile part. And she and I will go off on a walk, and, and we drone it. And so... There's no one around for miles, and it's just me and this woman, and we're walking, and it takes a long time. <laughs> and she's looking at me, and we're we're supposed to be like bonding, you know, and laughing, and and she doesn't speak English, and I don't speak her language, and so we're just sign languaging everything, and it's it's like amazing how fast you run out of things that you know how to sign language <laughs> that another person can understand, but. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, most of these women are really, they're very honored to be chosen and they get a kick out of it. And so we do, we laugh a lot in those moments and um, you just realize you don't really need words to bond a lot. You do need them for commerce, though, is what I learned in Cuba when I was there because I like had, uh, I brushed up a little bit. I took a bunch of Spanish when I was way back in high school and in Cuba. Was we, that the brushing up? Or did you brush up since then? No, I brushed up a little bit since then. But I was, I went there and it was, you know, I would consider my Spanish at the time transactional, not conversational. And I, even a week of being there, I was like picking it up more and more and I could read it pretty well. But we took a detour and went way on a, just into like the neighborhoods and Cuba's got two, um, currencies one is like the tourist peso and then they have like a local peso as well and so we found these really great local markets but i reached my limit and i just hit a block where zero people there spoke english and i was like wow this is really (laughs) not uncomfortable awkward like what do i do like i finally just pulled out the money and like let him take take what what you want (laughs) yeah basically i and you know that it wasn't weird it was yeah, it was it, it it was weird. I mean, it wasn't weird to anybody else, but <clears throat> that made me realize you know, taking for granted a language barrier or, you know, just that you could get stuck and have no idea what somebody's talking about. I never even really thought about that before, you know, even taking foreign language. 
I, I bought these uh, translation earpieces from Waverly Labs, and I haven't really had a chance to use them yet. But you, you put them in your ear, and they sync to a, an app on the phone, and the app downloads. It's almost like a Google Translator, but it does it in real time in your ear. Mm, so somebody's yeah. it's like Star Trek. Wow. So somebody's talking to you, as long as they're within three feet, the, the way it's supposed to work, as long as they're within three feet of the, your phone, it translates it in real time. And then you can have a conversation with that person that they have the earpieces uh, too. So you get two earpieces. You technically can have one in your ear. They can have one in their ear as long as they both have the app. You could be able to communicate. Got to be connected to the internet of some sort, though. Well, I, it's supposed to download the, the language. The language, the language. Yeah. So I you, you choose what language you're going to download. So I'm, I'm looking at it now, and I, I I have it for Spanish because I'm my four year olds in Spanish class. I'm going to I'm Italy in a few months, so maybe that'll be. Yeah, I, I don't know Italian. There's, there's Pizza's four. Pizza's the same yeah. in English and Italian. <laughs> I know in Neapolitan. There's uh, 14, I think, there's, so it's this Lasagna. Arabic, Chinese, English, French, German, Hindi, Italian, Japanese, Korean, Portuguese, Russian, Spanish, Greek, Turkish, and Polish. That's the majority. And then there's. What's it called? I need this. Uh, Waverly Labs awesome. uh, pilot uh, earpiece. And then in each of, each of those, it has different dialects. So I had tried it with a friend. Uh, who is Lebanese, and so she was speaking, and it didn't it didn't translate properly in my ear, but it translated properly because mm. it also comes up in text. Mm. So it's translated properly in text, but it didn't come properly in my ear. See, that makes me very nervous from a biblical standpoint because if you remember Tower of Babel, you know that's kind of you know I, I don't God intervened and said people were getting too friendly and needed to spread out. So if that becomes a thing, there might be like a Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to God. the religious podcast. <laughs> this is your hour of theology. So Mallory, how did you pick the countries that you're visiting? Uh, so I, I sort of divided up the world as, okay, if I'm going to do 26 of these and I want to have an equal representation of the globe. So um, based on just population, you know, I'm going to do five in Asia. I'm going to do five in Africa. I'm going to do three in South America. And I kind of just you know, ballparked them from there. And then um, after that, it's it's me finding great nonprofits to work with in regions and people that are willing to work with me. And I, um, you know, people always ask how I choose the cause or how do I find these women? And a lot of it's from personal recommendations from people that write to me that say this is a great organization. And um, so many of the organizations I support are small because that's how I can have it a direct impact. And, you know, I can raise $40,000 for this organization and that can be life-changing for them. So um, so I look for these really small, tiny little, really great nonprofits and, uh, and I go to where they are. So, yeah, so in Tanzania it was um, in Mwanza, which I had never even heard of this, this city, but it was actually... It's right on Lake Victoria, which is the giant lake right in the middle of the African continent. Uh, it's the second largest freshwater lake in the world. You know what the first largest is? Lake Michigan. Michigan? Superior. Lake Superior. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to go. Yeah. yeah. Boom. Great lakes. <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of cool. So, so wait, just, let me just make sure I got this right because this is fascinating to me. So like you going there and doing the walk a mile and featuring this you know, these women, but you're reaching out to small nonprofits who are already doing work in these areas and through your work, collaboratively, you know, highlighting them. But 
if you hadn't been doing that, they would still be there toiling away, doing that work. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, that's, that's really interesting. How do you find them? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I just have a really strong network of aid workers and like, how would anybody find them that was interested, you know, if they listen to this and are like, like now that I'm thinking about it, oh, where could I go find some of these things so here's to help an out? Interesting task for you. If you go to YouTube and you type, pick any country in the world and type in, you know, Bangladesh plus poverty plus charity and like see what pops up and you'll find all these really interesting charities that are doing really cool work. And uh, there, I mean, there's endless to choose from. Hmm. And so... I find a lot of them, sometimes it's a random Google search like that. A lot of times they're recommended to me uh, whenever I do press opportunities. People write in saying, you know, I went to Cambodia a couple years ago and I volunteered at this incredible community center and, you know, they'll throw in names in the hat and I just kind of piece it together and also, you know, where interests me and where I've always wanted to go and uh, what I think would make a good story. I want people to see through Walk a Mile that that women everywhere are fighting the same battle. So I want to represent all sorts of cultures, all sorts of environments, all sorts of, you know, the freezing cold Eskimos in northern Canada to tribes in Africa to, you know, people living in the mountains in Mongolia and and show that it's you know, d- diversity is like a beautiful thing in our world and it, it doesn't divide the needs. It doesn't divide your ability to connect with people and to bond with people. And so I'm, I try to show all of that as well. And, and you know, a little National Geographic in me wants to go to all those places anyway. <laughs> have you pitched this at all to a production company for like a TV show or anything like that? I have. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've talked to a couple different um, broadcast stations, and uh, there's potential in the future. Cool. I work pretty fast for uh, your normal mm-hmm. your normal broadcast schedule. You're also probably so, on a shoestring budget too. Yeah. So yeah, uh, I am. I still travel like a backpacker, but you know, I like it that way. Hmm. And when you travel these countries, where where do you stay? So I stay often in Airbnbs. I stay in in you know local houses or um, hotels or guest houses a lot, and most of the time the accommodations are okay. I mean the world has advanced greatly, so even in the remote places in the world you can find a hotel with Wi-Fi and you can find and Airbnb, yeah, and Airbnb. Yeah, I was so, just thinking so about many mind blowing things. Yeah, going so, on so, today. I'm just like like I was thinking about this like. For like cell phones, like I can't imagine in like a when you're in Tanzania, there's like cell phone towers anywhere, right? Do you like, get a satellite phone or? No, so my phone, I just turn off hmm. my data, and so my phone, my cell, you know, cellular doesn't work, and I use Wi-Fi at night. Um, however, the mobile phone industries in developing countries are booming. They just don't use Verizon and Sprint and AT and T like we do, but they have their own. Vodacom and all of these different, you know, services that you can you can get. So I have gotten a SIM card. Um, Kenya actually has the most robust mobile phone industry in the world. <laughs> so it's uh, you know not to be underestimated. But I kind of like to go off the grid and not be interrupted. And 
I'm on a totally different time zone, so everyone's sleeping when I'm awake anyway, <laughs> and I just take the you know the detox from my phone for a little bit. Because you're not flipping through Facebook like the rest of us and <laughs> wasting time. You're actually doing productive stuff. <laughs> how do you, how do you kind of quantify the the difference in being able to you know you you see all this poverty during the day and then you go to a hotel at night? Like how, how does that does that mess with you at all? Uh, hmm. Sometimes you can see the you know you feel like wow, I just spent a whole day with people who've never had a shower. And I can't wait to get back to my hotel room and take a shower. And that hits you sometimes. Um, One of the miles was in Serbia, and we featured a Roma woman, which the Roma people are, they're known as gypsies. So, um, and they're really persecuted in Europe. They are treated very poorly, kind of outcast to society, uh, the, almost the way we would treat homeless people. And they live in these settlements, and they're not really employable, and they don't, um, they're not really welcome. And the woman that we featured, her name was Miriana, and she was 24, and she was married, and I met her husband and her kids and her in-laws and the whole family. And I was thinking, they've never had... I don't think they've ever been to a restaurant and had like a nice dinner. And Serbia has some great food. And so after after we would film, my videographer and I would go out to this nice meal and try all this great Serbian food. And I'm like, they've just never done this in their whole life. And they're four miles down the road. It's You know, that it really hits you sometimes. And you realize how much we have and... When you think of, you know, it's it's very common to just throw out that you know, we live in the top 1%. And we all know that. And that's just a fact. When you really think about it, that means everyone else in the world lives less than you live. They have less than you have. And we're all sitting here trying to strive to have more because we want to be, you know, the 0.5% or the 0.2% or the 0.1% that lives in the giant mansions. But, like, we have a lot. We have a lot that people will never have. So, yeah, it hits you. You're very grateful for, for what, you, what you have. And now that you've done this, has that adjusted anything in your lifestyle? I've definitely become more of a minimalist. Mm-hmm. Um, I've become more appreciative, more grateful, uh, more kind. Mm-hmm. I, I find people living in poverty are exceptionally kind, and it makes me realize how. I mean, you probably are all looking at me thinking I'm some like do gooder, but like, you know, I have my similar frustrations with the world that everyone has, and and. But they're not thinking about Donald Trump, though. <laughs> right, they're not. But they don't, I and mean, they have so much that they could be angry about, so much, and they're not. They just don't walk around with that sort of negativity or hatred in their life because it doesn't serve them and how it's not going to improve anything. And we could all take a you know lesson from that. But the, I mean, not to go down too much of a tangent, but isn't that anger? That anger is taught, right? Like we see it all the time. Like we're, we're we are conditioned to want more, 
as Americans, mm-hmm. right? So with someone who Consuming has – Consuming is American. It, yeah, exactly. it's, like our, it's like our credo. According to yeah. the – I mean according to I, I George mean, Bush, to consume is to be an American. And, and even even look around, looking around the table, you can't see, but we have a bottle of bourbon. We have two bottles of beer. We have a bottle of be- Bijou. Like this is four bottles of alcohol that – you know, like we're just consuming and no big deal. Not not really even thinking about it. We are podcasting. This is kind of the pinnacle of yep, like crazy hobbies. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, really, and that's a true statement too. Mm-hmm. Like, um, like all of this seems very, you know, in light of what we're talking about, seems very like I don't know, opulent. Yeah, it's you know, it's interesting because I don't have any. I don't. I don't look at this and say, "Oh, we're podcasting and drinking beer," <laughs> because that's what it, people want. That's what people are striving for. Everyone wants to be comfortable. They want to have to be able to pay their bills on time, to send their kids to school, to eat whatever they want to eat, and have fun, and go and have adventures and travel. And you know, everyone around the world wants that. So, it's not to say that we shouldn't. Pursue those things, but we should be grateful and very aware that we have that ability. And I think that's what is lost. We, you know, I, I think all the time I should just be overflowing in joy every day because look at my life. I have a great life. I have the best life. I should never be mad because I just, you know, it, it could be, it, it could be so much, so much harder. And yeah. At what point do you think, like, you know, a lot of what we're talking about boils down to basic needs, right? And a lot of the world, the vast majority of the world doesn't have their basic needs met. Is there ever a point where you can see that there there will be enough philanthropic kind of endeavors where people will have at least some of their basic needs met on a more regular basis? Absolutely. Yeah. They say that we have enough food in the world to feed the world. We have enough water, although clean water is becoming an issue, but, um, you know, to so everyone has clean water. We have the resources. What we don't have is the distribution. People are too far apart and it's too expensive to get it to everyone. But with technology, with, you know, the I look at the millennial generation and it's a wonderful thing that people are so community minded people want to travel like the world is becoming a smaller place i think that there's uh there are solutions that are being developed every day to try to solve these problems and if you look at poverty on a global scale it's getting better it's poverty is you know less and less people are dying every year from just because they live in poverty because they don't have their basic needs met so that is great. I mean, that's super optimistic. Um, I think we're more aware, so maybe that's why it seems so shocking. But uh, but but the numbers are getting better. And, and as things like cell phones and um, the internet become more prevalent, like communication is a huge part of like being able to communicate and being able to tell your story and what you're doing. Like these are things that that help people see what's happening and. Some of it's going to come right from the voices themselves, and that goes to her point about awareness too. Because before YouTube, before you know, people are going out and you know broadcasting this type of stuff. You know, you hear about it in stories, or you might read about it in a book, or maybe you see it in a magazine, but you don't have that visualization that firsthand. Yeah, right. Yeah, and now it's 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 getting out there, and people are like, oh, is that really like 
what's going on out there? I didn't even know that. You know, I thought that I thought everyone was okay except for in this one little small part. You see how prolific it is. Mm-hmm. Is is tourism a big part of like, say, when you're in Tanzania? Is, is tourism something that happens there? Like, is it a big part of their? Uh, yeah, it's it huge. Is. Okay, Tanzania specifically, it is. Um, Tanzania is where all the iconic African safaris mm-hmm. and uh, the Serengeti is in Tanzania, which is where naturally all of the animals live in the wild. So, like, if you want to go see elephants and giraffes and lions in their natural habitat, you will go to the Serengeti. Um, Mount Kilimanjaro is in Tanzania. So, yeah, tourism is huge. In most in the most developing countries, tourism is massive. And I, I mean, I love traveling in these places because it's – it's beautiful. I mean, it's absolutely stunning and it's so affordable. And I think people, you know, when you watch my videos, if you look at just the scenery clips and you and you only focus on those, it's like these views you would you would, you know, pay big bucks to have that view out your hotel room and this is just the natural backyard view of, you know, right. it's it's just gorgeous. How widely shared are your videos typically? Uh, so I publish them on my YouTube channel and then, um, I publish them on Facebook and they, they get shared and reshared pretty widely. Uh, it's, you know, I have the local news normally does a, a showcase about each mile and then, um, I've gotten some national press as well. So I'm not too, I'm not too much of a stickler on counting views because to me, I'm I'm trying to raise money. I want people to watch the video and to donate. And so I more count the donations that come in and that's what I'm I'm more tracking. The reason I was thinking that is because it was uh, listening to Vado talk and thinking about modes of communication and how and how people become aware of things and what I think is great about that approach though is how many people don't think day in and day out about <laughs> about um, <laughs> about these things, right? Like, you know, um, we're in the upper one percent. We're we're living this life um, that we don't even think about often that people are striving for, and so it's not really entering our conscious. We're in our Facebook, like, oh, there, here's all these memes and different things and food and beverage stuff, right? And then here comes, you know, not from granted. I mean, you're getting the national news and different things, but it's like through like the network effects of this video, which is really compelling. I mean, I like I watched it before coming here. I was like, I want to show this because this is great content. And I feel like it's the person, you know, the, the humanity that shows through at the ground level from you taking the time to go there versus something produced, I guess, um, from like, um, like if it was a documentary report from a news station that was like, oh, there's this poverty. And you're like, okay, good, I get it. Versus like, your approach of going there, meeting the people, telling an inspirational story at the ground level and being able to share that in that video format, I feel like lends itself to people taking note and in that way, not the views in terms of I just am interested in engagement, but how many times that could be shared and lead to more donations, I guess. I totally agree because you, you, know? you could have a Ken Burns 13 you know, week series and the, what you put together in – Five and a half, six minutes is was really yeah. impactful. I think it's more impactful in like exploring those sort of things and how to get th- those shares as just a means of sort of 
yeah, viral communications, right? Yeah, I mean, that, my word. goal is to show that you know, and one individual can impact another individual's life. And when I when I say that message, what I really mean is, you, the viewer, you can click this button and you can donate and you can impact Elizabeth's life. But in doing so, you know, I'm showing that through my work. It's, I'm I'm just a I'm just an average woman, you know, I mean, I'm from Farmington Hills, Michigan. I didn't go to film school. I didn't, you know, I'm not any, I'm not a National Geographic photographer. I'm, you know, I'm just a person who found a way to tell really compelling stories and to connect the dots. And everyone could do that. Well, I guess, I mean, that's what I, I guess that's what I'm trying to get at in terms of that's what makes it successful. Like we all scratch our heads and say, why does the Take Detroit guy, like his videos go viral when he, everybody's trying to make these videos and he's just out there with a cell phone and they're like, oh, that it doesn't really that well produced. I mean, yours are nicely produced, but I think that captures the idea of why it can be successfully shared because people are seeing it and, and viewing it in that mode and saying, did authenticity and the genuine way that it comes across speaks to the potential that the social media networks offer, right? Like nobody's going, you tasked me with that, so I will, but nobody's going and picking the country and on YouTube and, you know, really searching for poverty and charity. So to have something shared in their timeline mm-hmm. that is from a person who is Relative self-described yeah. average. I did, right. Totally I not average. It, yeah, totally not average. But, um, <laughs> you know, but but approachable and authentic and genuine. And, you know, it's like, to me, that breaks down that barrier and removes the obstacle to somebody looking at that and, like, humanizing it and making it seem like it's right there. Like, ooh, I can make that difference, like, right now. Whereas, like you said, yeah, you can yeah. watch, like, a – something that's highlighting that or documenting that and it's like wow that really sucks but it's not really touching me right i guess you know yeah and, and to this point and i think this is this is important like you're in a place you're an improv in an impoverished country right but the video makes it look like you are having a great time and elizabeth is having a great time and so there's this point where like you you offer a bit of levity to the situation that maybe on a daily basis, I don't know how long you were in Tanzania for, um, but the, at those moments you were there were happy moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's a, that's a huge thing. I mean, cause you know, Elizabeth may not have those moment, many of those moments and she's working day in and day out trying to make her family, you know, do the best for her family. Well, people are in general, People living in poverty are quite happy, and I try to showcase that in the videos. And you know, the video this video starts, and you'll notice um, if you keep watching the series, every every mile of walk a mile starts with me taking a cell phone selfie with the woman, and we're always laughing and recording a video, and I'm recording it to send back to sponsors back home, but. That moment to me is so powerful. It's like the video could just end right there because you've got me and this Tanzanian woman who doesn't speak my language and we're cracking up taking a selfie video together. And it just shows like people are people, you know, and this is just a bonding experience between us. And I want people to feel that and feel connected to someone that 
they normally might have thought had nothing in common with them, that lives on the other side of the world, that has all these problems that I don't have, that why should I care about their problems? And I want to show, like, no, we are people. We are in this thing together. And frankly, I mean, the scale of those problems is so great that sometimes it's like, what can I even do about it? But having an average, quote unquote, <laughs> average person like, ooh, the average person can make a difference, which I think is another powerful you know, message that you're communicating when, yeah, these problems are really great. You're you know, highlighting these statistics and three billion people cook this way. But little by little, you can make those difference, which you know, I think is really fantastic. It's not average, but I think it – like think about – like I, I think back of you know watching television when I used to do that when there was actually like cable that people watch and commercials and like – you know, it's like the poverty commercial. And it's Sally like, Struthers. You know, yeah, or like yep. the – you know, the, the, the starving kid and the 1-800 number and the donate, but you're always like somebody else will do that. Right. You know? Now they have the – what is it, the ASPCA – they always had the animals now. And well, I, I was always of the the, the, the thought that it was like there you go. Um, <laughs> like the money's never going to get there. I always thought there was like or that. Yeah, I, I was always very um, skeptical sure. of, of, of Sally Struthers and, and those commercials. Um, I'm it's not skeptical of you right. I mean, not because I know you personally, but because even watching your video as a you know, it's like. Skeptical, a lot of charities. I mean, yeah. the administrative fees that people have, and how much of it actually goes to the actual charity itself. And do, do you know how much? So, if someone donates, uh, you know, we should talk about the stoves because that's a yeah. So, yeah. so you say at the end of the video, if you donate, is it twenty dollars for a stove? Mm-hmm. Um, so, of that twenty dollars, what makes it back to Elizabeth? Is there does she get any of the money directly? So. $20 is the cost to fund a stove. It's basically to sponsor a stove. Okay. Um, so 100% of the donations go directly to the charity on the ground. So I don't take a cut. A lot of people assume that that's how I work. I don't take anything. I profit zero from your money. Um, the charity doesn't take any administrative fees. They put it all into programming. So that $20 goes directly to Tanzania, and it's put into the fund that trains women and teaches them how to make stoves. So I say 100% of the money goes to Tanzania. It doesn't go into Elizabeth's pocket because there's a lot of women in this program who are all learning how to make stoves and, and training, but... um but there's none wasted. I mean, 100% is spent on the ground. And that's a lot of the reason why I choose small grassroots organizations because this is, you know, people are there every day grinding away because they believe in helping and they see the need and they're super minimal overhead. And there's just, you know, this is like for the love of the cause is why these organizations are around. So you really know that money is helping. Well, that I mean, that is an, a, a really big value, too, that you offer because, like you said, whether it's – if you're skeptical of giving, you've also done the work of selecting or vetting yeah, or, yeah. you know, you've been recommended these people or you've done the research and you yourself feel comfortable or confident – in where that money's going. So I think that also comes through and makes somebody feel more comfortable donating, right? Like I felt I would I saw them like, oh, twenty bucks is like nothing. Whereas you would watch that commercial and be like, eh, somebody else can do it. I'm not skeptical or I'm skeptical. And um and that, so yeah, and there's a lot of value there. And that works not something an average person does. I know. Yeah, <laughs> stuck we're stuck on that a little bit, but <laughs> when I think of average, I think of Nick. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> Thank you. New year, new, new year. you. New year, new you. <laughs> right. Maybe I'm I sorry. need to walk a mile in Nick's shoes. Oh. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, you're going to step on a lot of Legos. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we talked about the eight countries you've been to. What's what's the next? Uh, can you preview the next episode or? Yeah, okay. sure. So the next one you guys will love because the next one's actually in Detroit. Ooh. Oh. So um, yeah, I work all around the world, and I always make it a point to always do something in my hometown, Detroit. Give back locally. Uh, I think that's super important, and it's also for me a way to show to really drive home the fact that. People are people everywhere, so whether it's my own backyard or across the world. So I'm working with the Empowerment Plan, Mm -hmm. which is an amazing nonprofit in Detroit that empowers women who are formerly homeless and hires them into an organization that then sews coats that turn into sleeping bags, and then they give those away to homeless people. So the Empowerment Plan was started by a woman named Veronica Scott, uh, who's a good friend of mine, and it's a great organization. Um, and like many of the other 25 charities, uh, most of them are run by women. So it's a very women-powered powered mission here that I'm on. But, um, but yeah, so I will, be, I will be publishing that episode in early February. So do you have like a timeline that you give each of these? Are you, do you have like a... I don't know if it's like a set timeline that you give these episodes to kind of run a course and see how the donations are doing and then, or is it something that you, is it by feeling or? Mm, I try to publish, uh, so we just published the first one and I'm going to try to do every other month and see how that goes. 26 is a lot, so this is going to, this is a multi-year project for me. Um, So I'm sort of simultaneously filming episodes editing them and releasing them and uh and yeah so it's you know i'm i've got eight filmed um i have one published soon to be two published then i'm filming two more in march so this is just this ongoing cycle of my marathon is are there certain ideal times to travel or do you just plan trips whenever you feel like you get the travel bug or whatever uh, I plan trips based on the weather. On the weather. I try to live in summer year-round, <laughs> truly. Um, I mean, so it helps mo- for filming, too. It, it does. Yeah. And many developing countries are along the equator, so uh, it's a great way to get out of our winter and go somewhere <laughs> warm. So, um, yeah, so I, I plan it around there, and then just also my schedule and when is convenient. I spend a week, at least, in each country, so... That's a lot of time traveling, so I got to space it out and, you know, make sure I don't miss important events back home. This could be a dumb question. Do you have, like, a day job? Like, is this the job? This is the job. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. This is full-time for me. Cool. And that's sponsors. That's kind of driving that. Yeah. Okay. And I... I work as a motivational speaker. Cool. That's how I actually earn an income. So I teach people how to impact someone else's life. And I use my work as an, as a, as an example. Mm-hmm. So um, I travel around the country and I talk about Walk a Mile and I share my episodes and I tell people how I did it and how they can do that in small ways in their own community. So that's probably my day job. Okay. And this is my fun job. <laughs> 
And how, how much of what you do is based around uh, is based around food? So we, we like you're in Tanzania. Um, obviously, um, Elizabeth probably cooked for you at, at a certain point, right? She did. She yeah. We had two meals with her: one on the open fire flame, and one on the on the cook stoves, so that I could try to taste the difference between the two meals. Um, I guess you know I. I don't think I'm an expert in local Tanzanian cuisine, but uh, I guess the old way of cooking and the open flame, it's very smoky tasting. And if you were eating this meal every day, I'm sure you would tell that difference. But yeah, we had rice and beans and fish. And then uh, they asked us, like, you will be back tomorrow at noon. And so I said... Yeah, we will because you have to plan like, you know, because I don't have a cell phone or anything. So it's like tomorrow at noon I will show up on your front yard. And uh, we found out the next day they asked us because they killed a chicken so that we could have chicken for lunch the second day. So we had rice and beans and chicken. And, uh, you know, they didn't want to waste the chicken if we weren't showing up. So, yeah, so we had two meals together. And, and I mean, that's a big deal, right? Like that's like killing a chicken is like. Yeah, kind of shows that you're yeah that was an import, a very important person. Yeah, that was a gesture of gratitude, and uh, it's funny people. I mean, they'll eat the same thing every day, like rice and beans. And in Central Africa, they have this this starch. They call it ugali. It's basically like cornmeal mush, and it doesn't have much flavor, but it really fills up your stomach, and kind of just like their mashed potatoes but um they you know you'll say what is your favorite or what do you eat every day they say ugali rice beans okay and if you could have anything in the world like best meal of your life like i'm eating anything i want what would you eat and they'll say ugali (laughs) rice and beans. Uh-huh. And, and is, is it because they don't put the same, like, so, I mean, we're on, like, a food podcast, so mm-hmm. obviously we're always kind of searching for different food things. Is that maybe just not something that's a priority for them? I don't think so. I think food is sustenance mm-hmm. and fuel. it's yeah. energy. And they're trying to, you know, they got a billion things they're trying to do and they just need to eat yep. to keep going. Right, because it's like that or nothing, right? Yeah, it's, you know, it's really, I mean, people go hungry many days so they're grateful to have that that. yep so it's um so yeah i think it's not it's not about the taste and the cuisine and the unique flavors that also they don't have instagram so they don't see (laughs) the pictures of the stuff though right i mean to a certain extent you don't know what you don't know like you said so i mean i don't know they've never seen like a but then again we all know instagram is a big fat sparkly lie well, well, but well, even like the chicken. So, like to know that the chicken is a celebrational event. Mm-hmm. Still, the fact that she said, you know, hey, this is still what I want. I don't, I don't want chicken every day. Right. So well, and um, you know, I've done some funny experiments in my travels, and uh, I met a boy in Ethiopia. I might have talked about this last year, but I took him out for an Italian dinner because he never had Italian food. He never had pasta or pizza or anything. And we ordered one of everything on the menu because I'm like, you need to try 
it all, all the different sauces and, you know, pizzas and whatever they make in, you know, Ethiopia that they call Italian food is what we're having. And he ate it all. And, but he, you know, I don't think he really liked it because it's not, they're not used to that. Mm. And his palate wasn't really, you know, and so. It's probably like drinking baijiu. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, to some extent. It's yeah. when we try their food, it's like, uh, okay, I mean, where's my, what I'm used to, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, you, you grow accustomed to what you know. And I think a big part of this is that, you know, we, we kind of, kind of like to hoist our, values onto people so mm-hmm. like i love food you know i i imagine that everybody loves food right and it's one of those things it's like well, it's not that important to everyone you know he's like it's italian food it's cool but i'd rather have my rice and beans and that's fine yeah i would say uh you know food is pro- like it's just an, a different sort of value because meals are probably everyone's favorite time of day like they love to eat and uh, it's always surprising to me how, um, <laughs> like, I would say they have no manners because they just, like, dig in. But I think it's because they, they're they looking forward to eating. Mm-hmm. So they're just diving right in. Um, so, and they'll eat more rice than you can ever imagine, just piles and piles and piles. So, like, the volume and the quantity and the they enjoy it a lot. It's just a different priority than we have. We're looking for this unique experience and flavors and cuisine and they just they want to fill their stomachs so where can people donate to you where, where do they find you online and all, and all of that so they can donate to my crowd crowdrise campaigns uh so it's crowdrise.com slash walk a mile uh you can also go the easier way is to go to my instagram uh, which is at travel mail and then the link to donate is always in my bio so that or Facebook, you can donate right away um, if you if you search Travel Mail. T R A V E L M A L M A L. That'll take you right to it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us again. Yeah, thank Thanks you for awesome. having me. Yeah. Until next time, dine well, friends.